Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to FYI. I'm Tasha Keeney, and I cover autonomous driving and 3D printing for Arc. Today, I'm joined by Ro Gupta, CEO of Carmera. Carmera makes real-time HD maps for autonomous driving. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. First row, you know, I'd, I'd love to for you to tell us about your background, uh, how you got into the space, what what drew you towards uh, autonomous cars, and and ultimately what made you decide to build Carmera. Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, first of all, thanks for inviting me. I heard all kinds of things about your famous radio voice, <laughs> so it's a pleasure to be on. Um, but uh, yeah, the story of Carmera goes back. Well, it goes back actually quite a ways if you really want to go back to um, where I come from. I come from a developing country. I was born in India. And so I think there's a there's a, a number of things just from my very early childhood that I think it probably influenced wanting to do something in the kind of the transportation and, and infrastructure space. Uh, I won't go into them too much, but I think if you've ever spent time in developing countries, you don't take roads for granted. <laughs> you see just how much of the nervous system they really are for real the real world. And, and then also, I just happen to also have a personal, you know, kind of a family event of, you know, a um, frame of member dying in a car accident, which hopefully today would have been, I mean, certainly would, would be preventable with the technologies today that we're all working towards. So, you know, that goes back really 40 years, but uh, more recently, my real foray into transportation started when I was an undergrad. Uh, this is about 20 years ago. And I was in an engineering program at Princeton. It was a very multidisciplinary one. Um, it was an operations research program. So a lot of kind of a mishmash of computer science, lots of statistics and stochastic systems, network optimization. So a lot of applied you know, uh, computer science, but also civil engineering and economics. And in, in, we just happened to have a very forward-thinking uh, transportation group there with a, a faculty member who's uh, just you know always been sort of somewhat of a pioneer in, in transportation for decades, and so just by luck, kind of, I was exposed to a few things in about 1998-99. One was we actually helped design autonomous transit systems. Just again, <laughs> just because we happen to have a. Uh, this faculty member, a guy named uh, Alan Kornhauser, who um, was really into that stuff, uh, concepts like personal rapid transit, you know? You know yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with him. Yeah. He writes a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're still in touch. And yeah. um, and actually, the, the, what's funny is his sort of baby at the time was this concept, PRT, personal rapid transit, which is mm-hmm. actually there's one or two in the world. There's one in West Virginia, which is essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm so oversimplifying, but essentially the concept of PRT, which has been around for you know decades, is essentially where autonomous, you know, Uber, Lyft, Waymo is going essentially like, you know, the core principles of on-demand, point-to-point, personal, you know, 
pods, essentially. The, the major difference was that just technologically, it was assumed to be running on a rail, on like a monorail. Kind of the running joke whenever I see uh, Professor Kornhauser is, <laughs> we had everything right, but it turns out the rail was there the whole time. Yeah. It was just the road, you know? And, and I think it's actually fitting because we can talk about this in a second, but what Carmera is essentially doing is building virtual rails for safety, for redundancy, for you know a lot of other things, for helping with planning for autonomous vehicles. But, uh, but anyway, so that was just fortuitous, uh, but it was very theoretical, obviously, still then. Yeah. And also the other two things that, were, that I got exposed to around then were uh, two of the core foundational technologies we and the rest of the industry uses, neural networks and uh, computer vision, although at the time they're actually very separate. I, I was exposed to them in, very, in you know, two very different departments. Um, uh, and uh, they were not actually, like right n- today, basically almost all of computer vision that you sort of see being commercialized is, you know, deep learning, neural network based, right. or a lot of it is. At the time, we were learning about neural networks more for just more kind of rote statistical problems, you know, interesting, uh, you know, time series analysis, et cetera. So, and then again, similar to autonomous transit, it was still very theoretical, very early. Right. I think honestly, a lot of academics thought they were kind of maybe fads or gimmicks back then. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with the non deep learning versions of computer vision. And then fast forward to 15 years later. So that would have been five years ago today, summer of uh-huh. 2014, I was at a startup uh, in a different space then called Discuss. It was in the social web 2.0 wave of startups, sort of a decentralized, uh, basically a commenting system, but with a lot of social features. So a little bit like a you know decentralized Reddit or kind of thing. So a couple of things happened. One is uh, I was getting ready to roll off and do my new thing. And one of my responsibilities there was to productize and commercialize the data asset, which had grown very large. Uh, so, you know, grown past 2 billion uniques. Uh, which was also one of my jobs early on was to get distribution. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we also had a SaaS product, but the data asset turned out to be, you know, really large and arguably one of the most uh, valuable parts, if not the most valuable part of the company, which then exited uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, I think that was the case. And it was just a really interesting experience for me because it was really interesting to see like when we company was started, a lot of the infrastructure to make kind of that social web and advertising big data um, product, it like wasn't really viable yet because the, you know, things like Hadoop or like, you know, all, sure. some real-time streaming of data, all that kind of stuff just hadn't been built out yet. But okay. come, yeah. you know, say 2015, 2016, it, it had, and it was became mature and there's a real big growing market. So long story short, it got me really interested in emerging data markets. And the same, the other thing that happened in summer 2014 was, I started t- realizing that a lot of those things that were very theoretical in the 90s were actually coming true in in transportation. So, you know, Tesla was rolling out autopilot around then. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the project show for Google folks, I had one or two friends and, you know, talked to some of them about what their problems were. Um, another person I talked to around then was uh, the founder of Cruise, Kyle Vogt, who's working on his early form of Cruise, mm-hmm. and then one or two others. And so, you know, it became clear that A, it was becoming real and it was early days, but exciting. And, you know, there were real strong teams and, you know, companies starting to back this for real, mm-hmm. but that there was going to be kind of a new stack, you know, a new, this new AV stack. And inevitably there were going to be unsolved problems within that stack. And, you know, some of these people were telling me some of those problems and it became clear that kind of this next generation spatial data to support autonomy and to be more specific, high definition map data, as opposed to standard definition map data, you know, which is sort of what you see in your infotainment panel on your car or on your, your Google maps on your phone. Right. But the next generation of that was going to be important. Uh, most of the, um, you know, really sophisticated teams were relying pretty heavily on that, but having to create it themselves. And the other thing that became apparent was that 
building these high definition maps once is hard enough. They have to be very accurate, very detailed, three dimensions. That's all hard. Um, but maintaining them when things change was just a, you know, even for the most sophisticated companies at the time was still, you know, they'd be very transparent that that, that was still an unsolved problem. How, how do you actually keep these things up to date at global scale and, okay. and cost effectively, right? Okay. Yeah. Yes. That was going to be one of my questions. You know, every company that's working on autonomy also has to look at this mapping piece. And so you're saying what makes it so difficult for say a traditional OEM to do this in-house is that maintenance piece of the map. I would go further actually. Uh, I mean, even traditional OEMs didn't even do standard definition maps themselves, right? For the most part, like, so that's why incumbents in our space emerged and had, you know, um, so Navtech was really the pioneer in this space. And, you mm -hmm. know, they went through various uh, sort of incarnations that you know, the IPO got bought by Nokia and now are owned by the German consor consortium. But them and TomTom, you know, they were the two top and still are the two top vendors of standard definition map data because maps are a very orthogonal skill for actually I would even argue for most even tech companies, but certainly for automotive companies, right? It's certainly not like mechanical, uh, electromechanical problems that they're used to. And it's not, it's even different from software engineering problems. I mean, there's obviously a lot of software engineering involved, but mm -hmm. fundamentally it's an ever-changing data, you know, basically updating what the world looks like. And it's different than just an elegant software problem, writing some code and then letting it, you know, kind of sure. <laughs> do its thing, right? I think what's different about it is, the software part of it is hard and specialized. You know, there's there's a limited number of really top geospatial engineers in the world, and they're only in a few pockets, actually. That's one of the reasons we started our Seattle office. Actually, there's a lot of great talent in, in geoengineering there. Okay. Uh, the other reason, though, is there's also a lot of like operational e elegance that's involved because it's, like I said, it's not all just sort of a problem of, of code, essentially, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, There's a lot of like quality assurance and, you know, sourcing data and all those kinds of things. And, you know, it varies by region because, you know, there's mm -hmm. certain laws that are different about what, how, what you can do with data in certain countries. So you also have to have a lot of DNA to master that as well. Mm -hmm. And again, that's yet another reason why we, we did um, start our dual, you know, we have a sort of a dual HQ system of New York and Seattle and Seattle, we have people who've done maps at scale for companies like, you know, Apple maps, Amazon, Google, you know, all the, all the usual suspects and, okay. and that DNA is really important. So, okay. Yeah. I guess for the, the traditional mapping companies, obviously an HD maps adds this extra layer of complexity. Um, why do you think that a company like Tom, Tom either, either might succeed or, or sort of struggle in, in this shift to HD map? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the classic, the whole, the classic Clay Christensen stuff, right? I mean, yeah. it's like with any company, um, who has, they just happened to build their tech stack in the 90s. And we had the luxury of building it five years ago, you know, it started right. five years ago. So just pure timing, like we were able to purpose build to focus on the problems that are really specific to HD, right? So mm -hmm. that's, like I said, it's, you know, change management, um, faster and cheaper. And also part of the faster and cheaper is a result of being able to do that change management through um, crowdsource probes and, and the camera only sources, right? So mm -hmm. those are things that, again, we just had the luxury of knowing that that was likely to be the uh, parameters of the problem, you know, when we started the company, as opposed to having to try to like take a 20 year old tech stack and then lop that on later. That's sure. just always really hard to do, you know? And then right. of course, there's also the commercial, the, the two other things that make it hard for incumbents to steer the aircraft carrier are um, obviously the legacy, you know, businesses and the quarterly targets and all of that, you know, like they have, while they're, I'm sure hopeful, just as we are about 
the commercial opportunity for HD maps for autonomy, they still have to like pay the bills, meet their targets for mm -hmm. the street. And they have a lot of other legacy businesses that are outside of autonomy, like say point of interest data or something like that, mm -hmm. where, you know, a lot of the focus is going to be naturally in terms of where you focus your product uh, development resources, your sales team, all that. Right. And then the last thing is organizational. My sense is, you know, I think, you know, TomTom Tom has, you know, sort of tended to stay fairly independent over the years. I think, uh, you know, the founder is still at the helm, which, uh, you know, is actually pretty remarkable. Um, mm -hmm. Here, you know, is is pretty, like, I think that's also been another moving part in the equation. They have, you know, they're owned by a few of the main customers and, um, right. and then it's kind of a consortium ownership. So that inevitably always causes a lot of, you know, other sort of potential organizational or potential channel conflict issues as well. I'm sure they've, you know, they've been doing what they can to mitigate those, but, but yeah, for all those reasons, these are also, I would say really pretty typical reasons. Once, you know, you, you have incumbents in a space who have been operating for more than a decade, it just gives upstarts new entrants like us, um, you know, openings to be able to really focus on what the real, the next 20 year or 50 year old problem really is, um, starting from a cleaner slate. Right, right. That makes sense. You know, I'd, I'd like to ask you sort of your view on the sensor set. Elon Musk famously says that LiDAR is a crutch, um, but a lot of traditional automotive companies are, are still using LiDAR, but both for mapping, but also uh, for, you know, like real-time navigation. What are what are your thoughts generally? Well, yeah, well, a couple, couple of thoughts. First of all, I think, I think broadly speaking, the crutch um, actually, I'm stealing this from a kind of a friend in the industry. So we're um, one of our uh, research partners is the University of Michigan and their M City track. So we're the resident HD mapping companies there. And uh, one of the people who, who ran it, I saw had a quote, I think, when Elon said some of those things, or maybe his, I forget who's on someone on his team said some of those things about a crutch. And mm -hmm. I think I, I'm going to botch the quote, but it was basically like, yeah, you know, that's our job. Like that's our job as engineers and people solving problems. Everything's a crutch. Like aviation, you know, uh, this wasn't part of his quote, but like your pilot, next time you take a flight, he could fly the plane just by looking out the window, but yeah. we want to give him as many crutches as possible. We want to give him weather data. We want to give him air traffic data. Right. So I think fundamentally I would, uh, take issue with that word as being like a pejorative, you know, it's, it's like, especially when you're talking about, you know, I think a lot of the issues that the kind of conflating, like looking at this problem to similar to like the iPhone or to, you know, yeah. or to other things, quite frankly, even like some of Elon's other companies like SpaceX or whatever, is mm -hmm. that there are just so many more externalities in automotive, right? Yeah. So like, a phone's not going to run into a pedestrian or a pole. Even a, a rocket can be contained, right? In in terms of like where it's launching and if it mm -hmm. hits something or if it explodes. Cars are in the wild. They're there. They're in our lives. They're in the built environment, right? They're mixing with society and everything. So where I'm going with this is I think when you have that many externalities, that's what sort of the economist term for it, right? Sort of the right. third order costs or benefit uh -huh. uh, that are usually oftentimes unintended or, you know, sort of not part of the direct service you're launching. It makes it a, just a different problem to solve. And that's why I'm bringing it back to why like crutches, like re like redundancies basically, right, are, those are synonymous with safety um, and of getting a new frontier type technology to an acceptance rate for society and government. Um, and that's, that's, so that's fundamentally, I guess I'll preface this with all that, right? Okay, we can yeah. go deeper into that. Right, yeah. With the LIDAR debate, actually, we don't have a dog in that fight. In fact, yeah. if anything, 
we, you know, like if the Tesla camp is right, that actually would be good for us, but it mm -hmm. actually doesn't really matter too much. We're pretty agnostic. So right. just so you know, we uh, build our maps through a hybrid approach. So we do use LIDAR uh, systems, either from our customers' vehicles or from third-party sort of like surveying firms. The sensors and these mobile mapping systems have actually gone, gotten pretty commoditized. You can just like, you know, you have to know something about how to operate them, but you know, these surveying firms can, um, can collect data really quickly and efficiently all over the world. And the cost of it keeps going down. And so for mm -hmm. doing our base mapping, kind of the initial sort of static map for any highway or city that a customer wants, it's uh, you might as well use it. It's the best tool you have, and it gives you really good accuracy and density and, you know, and the point clouds and all that. But I will say, like, I think, you know, we do think it's speculative to just assume that LIDARs are going to be ubiquitous overnight. Yeah. I mean, right. and, and, you know, obviously for a company like us, we like timings is everything. So mm -hmm. We have never made the assumption that for map maintenance that we would be able to rely on LiDAR. Mm -hmm. So therefore, for the change management on top of our base maps, we've developed a system that assumes camera only and in fact, even like very cheap commodity cameras, you know, like vehicle or cameras that are out today in the streets, you know, like a Toyota camera. Mm -hmm. We also partner with uh, delivery fleets so that we're not dependent solely on our customers' data and we, we can provide a full sort of comprehensive living map in any area just with our own first party data. Uh -huh. And that's by just uh, installing really cheap sensors on delivery fleets or maintenance fleets that are operating in that area. Uh, we provide them a visual telematic service and in return we're able to collect data very cost effectively and with very high refresh rates. Mm -hmm. And again, that's all because we're kind of making sure that we're within the constraints that our own customers tell us that they're likely to have in this planning period. Like, you know, they say, don't assume we'll have LIDAR, you right. know, uh, don't assume we can even okay. give you all the data off our cameras. Well, like we probably will, but we don't know when exactly that'll be. And so we also like to control our own fate there. So. Okay, right. That that makes sense. Interesting. So I guess if you could entertain one more Tesla question that sure. I have for you. Um, so Elon also says that they're not using base maps yeah. in their solution. What do you think of that approach? And obviously we do have a dog in that fight. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, even look, I will say, let's just go back to why maps are being used at all, right? <laughs> you know, I think the argument is often made. I, this is also true for the LiDAR argument. Like you hear people like Elon and others who have a very kind of pure AI centric camera only approach say mm -hmm. well humans don't need lasers and you, you know humans don't have hd maps although actually you could kind of argue we do a little bit but that's a separate okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, neuroscience question but uh, but anyway like so like we don't need those they're a crutch we can just use uh you know pure sort of real-time neural net based uh, systems for perception and yeah. um and planning and for sensing you know cameras are fine just because basically they're, they're just like our eyes and the issues with that argument, one is that actually purely theoretically, yeah, yeah that it actually is plausible, right? So mm -hmm. you could see a some kind of future where just with cameras and you know, the AI neural net approach alone, it is as good uh, as humans, maybe even better, a little better. But most people think that is still, I mean, it's really hard to predict the S-curve, right? Yeah. But most people still think the vast, vast majority of people who've been working on this for both a long time and even come in uh, sooner, think that is still way farther away than the minority of folks like Tesla and others think. Okay. The other thing is the whole point, that argument, like the whole point is to be a lot better than humans, right? Humans are going and killing sure. 40,000 people every year in this country and over a million people in the world, right? Absolutely. So we don't want to just improve on that by, you know, a few percent. We want to like improve it on that by, you know, 
10x, 100x, right? Yeah. And so that's to me a fundamental fallacy in that argument too, is like, if humans can do it, we should just do the same things that humans do, right? Like, and for example, if I could shoot laser beams out, you know, <laughs> yeah. and improve my golf game, I would. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah. So, uh, so there's that, there's that. And then the, then the final thing is something we've already alluded to, which is, again, this is not a technology can that can be deployed in a vacuum or in constraints that can just sort of affect only the end user right mm -hmm. there's just fundamentally so many other stakeholders and mm -hmm. you know again i'm using this word externalities you know there's positive externalities like better you know all the things that we're excited about for autonomy like land use and congestion etc but there's also lots of negative external externalities even if you do a really good job but you're not at sort of this a much higher bar for societal acceptance that it would take for autonomous cars compared to, like I said, like an iPhone or something else, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's for all those reasons, that is why like the vast majority of the industry that includes, you know, the full stack companies, uh, you know, like the Waymo's of the world, the Toyota's of the world from the traditional auto, the uh, delivery bot companies, uh, shuttle, you know, autonomous shuttle companies, just the vast, vast majority do rely really heavily on these HD maps because they are basically for every major question that these AV brains are constantly asking. So there's really three or four. So the, let's just do all four. Okay. The yeah. first question is the where am I question, localization. Yeah. Right? Second is what's around me. That's perception. Third is what do I do next? So that's planning. And then the, the fourth is, you know, you could loop this in maybe... Um, with the what do I do next, but the controls. So it's so like, how do I do it? You know, sort of like, how much do I throttle or, you know, like what's my turning, that kind of stuff. So all of those, our customers are using and, you know, across the industry, the map is used as a reference and a source of truth, uh, or at least, you know, approaching truth for all those questions. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's become so foundational as sort of a gating factor, a kind of a safety critical gating factor, as opposed to just one other <laughs> crutch to use their to use their term sure. it's basically i guess what i'm saying is it's a it's a really big big crutch <laughs> you know okay and like i said there's parallels to you know other forms of transportation like aviation where we still use lots of crutches to make sure that it's a, not only up to the safety levels that society will demand but mm -hmm. also for rider you know for passenger experience right like a good map even if you get so good, right? Even if you get so good at say localization, you know, like knowing exactly where you are with, you know, your uh, onboard uh, localization engine. And also, even if you get so good at real-time perception that you don't even feel like, eh, I don't even need to uh, refer to the map anymore. I'm just, sure. so, I'm just, you know, I'm already at the number of nines of reliability I need to be. Yeah. It's always gonna be really useful to refer to a source of truth on two others. So basically the, the, what I'm talking about is like, we describe ourselves as road intelligence, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we would HD maps, but if you think about it in terms of the name intelligence, there's components to intelligence, both you know, like our own intelligence. And in the case of our maps, the table stakes is the knowledge, right? Like you want to have the best sort of current knowledge of what the world looks like so that that robot can refer to your map to help give it confidence on those first two questions, the where am mm -hmm. I question and what's around me question, right? Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is even if the robot starts saying, oh, I'm actually really, really good at that. I, I, I passed that. Yeah, sure. I passed that. The other questions around what do I do next and how do I do it, it's really also useful to refer to a data source that has good both wisdom, so historical wisdom, okay. and also yeah. uh, like foresight, the predictive foresight. So in our case, we like we pride ourselves on having a very comprehensive approach to what we do, which is, you know, 
A, we, typically when we're uh, serving a customer in an area through our sort of what we call our swarm approach, where uh, it's not just building a map once, but also constantly having probes out there that are maintaining that map, mm-hmm. we learn a lot about characteristics uh, that are sort of more, obviously they're historical in nature, but are tend to be statistically significant. So one example is pedestrian density. And that's something that we've publicly talked about. We're actually even sharing this data with governments like the city of New York. Yeah. Is like in New York, we know to statistically significant and very uh, kind of granular levels how dense blocks and intersections tend to be around the city at you know certain times of year, certain uh, you know days of the week, et cetera. And so if you think about that, that you know, even though that's like you're still gonna need the AV is still gonna need to know if it's seeing a pedestrian and walking across the street or not, obviously. Sure. But for planning purposes, it would be really useful to know ahead of time that, you know, this like 28th really Madison tends to be just a nightmare with yeah. people crossing the street or, you know, people in, like, walking on the bike lanes and stuff mm-hmm. at these day parts or these days of the week, right? And knowing that ahead of time. Same thing with other types of more, um, and so now I'm switching more into like forward uh, thinking, so foresight, right? Yeah. Part of the advantage of having this sort of swarm probe network is that, especially vehicles that are not getting data from vehicles that are not just our customers' vehicles, mm-hmm. is you can address what people in industry call a first observer uh, problem. I've mm-hmm. also heard it called the car zero problem, but basically it's like, most roboticists would much prefer their robot to not be the first to see something it wasn't expecting, right? Okay. So if you have probes that are independent of your customer, yeah. then oftentimes you can see things that they don't yet have, you know, their vehicle does not have line of sight yet into because, you know, their LIDARs and cameras and radars can't see six blocks ahead or, or through the building around the corner. And sure. so a good example of that is construction. You know, one, one of the, the thorniest problems is construction. Every city is torn up all the time. Even highways, you know, are just constantly in construction. Right. The permit records are never right. Okay. <laughs> and so, so it can be can, unexpected. Exactly. And- exactly. So basically, like, going back to your question, like, even in a highly theoretical world of where some of those earlier questions of localization and perception are, you know, there's negligible difference in terms of what the real-time AI system is making between what the map says. You're always going to want to have the best kind of uh, historical and, f- and forward-thinking data for wherever, the, you know, that that vehicle is because not just for safety, but also for passenger experience. Like, for example, that construction example, yeah. it's going to be a better experience if, you know, you can either navigate your vehicle around the, in- the block entirely mm-hmm. or still navigate it through that block, but know ahead of time that they converted a parking lane to a driving lane. So you, the vehicle doesn't have to stop and, and, think, about and think about it or a remote out person has to get involved sure. or they disengage or, you know, whatever, you know? Yeah. So that is our long-winded answer to that okay. assertion. <laughs> okay. That makes a lot of sense. We, we, we've talked about safety a lot and I know you wrote a piece recently for Axios about safety. So I'd love to sort of get your thoughts. You know, this is still sort of uncharted territory for regulators. We sort of have our own internal thesis as to how we think that will play out in terms of the approval process. Uh, what are your general thoughts on like where that's going and, and what are companies going to need to be able to prove that safety? Yeah. So, the, you know, the, the reason we wrote this, we, were asked, we sort of wrote this piece or we're asked to write it was what's interesting about where we play in the ecosystem is First of all, we serve all different types of uh, customer from, again, traditional OEMs, 
Toyota is one that's public. Mobility is a service, more robo-taxi model. One one of the customers that's public there is Voyage. Uh, the one you know, they focus on uh, right. more like closed uh, environments like retirement cities. Mm-hmm. You know, We also are a um, partner of Baidu Apollo. We've also done some work with tier one suppliers like Lear. And then I, I think I mentioned some other categories like trucking, delivery robotics, yeah. um, you know, that kind of thing. So like we see a really wide cross-section of those companies. And then we also, almost every piece of technology that com- those companies are using ends up touching the map at some point, right? So we also get to to really understand that, you know, very sort of horizontally as well. And so, and then the, the last piece is like, I think I alluded to this, we also are the data that we collect to build our maps ends up being useful for actually a, a large portion of non-automotive stakeholders. And so one thing we started doing just because we felt it was a good thing to do is something that was part of sort of our mission and all that is to provide data to cities, uh, sort of, we call it data exhaust Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, you know, it's it's a, a good kind of collaborative way to work with people who make in the rules and um, right. and obviously also want to be part of it. Yeah. And so, you know, in that process, a lot of these stakeholders and, and one other one that I haven't mentioned is insurance companies. Mm-hmm. They started to come to us because we, we do sort of see such a wide cross section. And fundamentally, what we do is a safety critical service and started asking us those questions as well because they had no clue. <laughs> you know, okay. this, yeah. this happened. This started <laughs> happening around... Probably about a year ago. Okay. Um, and, uh, but then this year it's really become actually a lot more pronounced and actually. What do you think, what do you think's driving that? Uh, I think it's just the, you know, the typical maturation, you know, kind of going, uh, we're kind of in that trough of the S curve, which is, I think, good thing, by the way, I'm, I'm a fan of troughs okay. <laughs> because it's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's easier to plan once you know you're, you know, in them. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people realizing that the, you know, we absolutely were in a hype cycle and this is harder than all those press releases said it was, you know, it was. And that also we're going to have to answer to a lot more stakeholders than just some person flipping on an app on their phone. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also part of it is like people are farther along. So they're, they're ready to have those conversations, whether it's a AV company or a government who's gotten a bit smarter now on, you know, like some of the, you know, the laws or some of the risks uh, they need to think about. And then also, like I said, uh, stakeholders like insurance who are now just being pulled into this. They have no, you know, they can't afford to be, for their underwriting to be made obsolete by only being positioned for human-driven vehicles. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so for all, and then, yeah, of course, this is in the news for Tesla too, right? Tesla's mm-hmm. like trying to take that in their own hands, which I, I by the way, I think is really like, uh, you know, a good thing for the industry. So yeah, so that's, I, and, and by the way, I think like the, a good barometer for these things, it's like I always judge the hype cycle by CES every year. You know, it's okay, like a really yeah. good barometer yeah. for where we are. Uh-huh. And then the other thing was uh, the AVS uh, symposium, the, uh, I forget, the OFC is the name of the body and then T. TRB are the ones who put it on every year. Right. It's basically like one of the very first uh, AV conferences that, you know, has been going on. It's like eighth year now or something. Um, and, okay, yeah. and so that happened in July in Orlando. And all the keynotes this year were about safety policy and like what different companies. So, you know, Aurora spoke, Volvo spoke mm-hmm. uh, at the SAE, uh, someone from the SE, the Society for Automotive Engineers spoke. So they're, they're the ones who created the levels of autonomy. Yep. Yep. Another consortium from Germany, from a lot of German auto companies. And all their their talks were about, you know, how they view what the safety policies they think, what, what the sort of certification and functional safety standards are likely to be. And so that, again, I think was a really good barometer for people actually working on the problem. Like, okay, they're now thinking seriously about this. It's not just hand waviness and, and platitudes. And that's what, that's actually what sparked the post because 
you know, I was there, I was on a panel, get a lot of yeah. questions. And then we got a lot of questions from people like in insurance and government and also some of our customers. And so the, the, the kind of somewhat hokey name of that post, but I think people seem to like it is uh, we think the way things are heading is a sort of trust sandwich. <laughs> That's what we're calling it. And where you were kind of playing on the whole trust, but verify, you know, kind of saying that I think Reagan made popular years ago. And if you look at the evolution, the reason we think it's headed that way, it's essentially like if you go back like almost 10 years when the project show for Google folks were starting, right? There was nothing. There was like really no oversight. They were basically just doing their thing, really almost no oversight at all from any like regulators, governments, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then like, I would say five years ago, then you started seeing states like California, Michigan, Florida, Texas, et cetera. Sure, all the separate states are pushing. Vegas, and yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're actually at least creating some frameworks and they were still not really sure, but at least some reporting requirements. So, you know, like the standard, how many vehicles, mileage, disengagements, crashes, right? Um, yeah. And so that evolution to us felt like, okay, this initially started with just like, there's one or two companies like Google and the Carnegie Mellon folks doing it. We're just going to trust that they don't, you know, <laughs> that they're just going to do their thing. In it. And then, like no one was even paying attention because it felt like a toy, right? Right. So that Too was just early. trust kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. And then like, then five years ago, it felt like, okay, trust, but verify, but somewhat, you know, like best sure. guesses on what they should report. It was also very apples to oranges. You know, it's really hard to compare those statistics right. across and, companies or across states. And, yeah. And there was sort of like a lot of leeway in what you were reporting because like the definitions weren't so defined. Like yeah. that's what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so basically like what, where we think it's going is essentially like verify, trust, verify. <laughs> so <Okay>. basically <laughs> there's going to be some sort of ex ante stuff that those stakeholders are going to want to like feel good about just like if you were getting your driver's license, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's like your driving record or your, you know, if you took a driver's ed class or whatever, the kind of vehicle you own, does it have airbags, ABS? And Mm -hmm. even now there's some aftermarket things that like dash cams that are, you know, getting insurance discounts, you know, for, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, I think in, in AV, I think, you know, you're going to see stuff like Obviously, closed track testing and simulation are like actual empirical results that could theoretically be shared with a regulator or insurer. And also, I think there's certain, um, you know, safety features, crutches, if you will, that we yeah. do th- we do think may be uh, taken into account, just like they are if you buy a vehicle today. And you know, a few of them that seem to be the most pervasive besides HD maps. HD maps is one of them that almost the entire industry uh, feels is really critical for safety, and that governments and, and insurers and others seem to also think so from the conversations we've had to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, others include, and it depends on the use case, but things like a remote operation I mentioned, especially for say level four, you know, mobility as a service. Right. But, and then also for more of the human assisted, uh, like driver monitoring systems, uh, you know, like um, for example, uh, GM Cadillac uh, uh, have a really uh, robust one. Okay, um, right. And so those are some examples of like, you know, maybe they're more checks of a box or something, but you know, before, that robot ever, you know, sorry, leaving yeah, its yeah. garage. Those are things that can be verified ahead of time, ex ante, and then, uh-huh. and then of course, ex post. You know, obviously, you can retroactively see uh, how, how it's it performing. Performed, yeah. So that's generally like that sort of again what we say trust sandwich. The verify that those ex ante uh, factors are in place, and then sort of trust that you know they can be deployed, and then verify again after the fact. We we see as the the general trend here. Okay, got it. That makes sense. I'd love to sort of talk about how you see autonomy evolving in in different markets. You know, you have partners like Toyota and and Baidu that that operate internationally. What does Carmera look at as maybe challenges or opportunities abroad? And how do you think different? I mean, the biggest one really is China, right? I mean, yeah, um, yeah, we operate 
almost everywhere else in the world where really any automotive companies are operating, China's just, it's, it's basically like a different planet, you know? So actually our relationship with Baidu Apollo is more with their US uh, group. We do, mm -hmm. you know, we do know the, the Chinese group as well, but basically with China, there's so many factors at play. One is the most obvious one is they have a lot of restrictions on any foreign entities doing any kind of mapping or geospatial data collection there. That's right. So yeah. unless, you know, they have all kinds of uh, rules around um, Chinese national uh, ownership of your company. And there's really only like there's something like only like a dozen mapping permits in the entire country. And they're all like, a lot of them are rooted in people from the military. So there's like a Got very it. few, they're a very small set of companies that are even allowed to do this there. Right. Interesting. And yeah. then of course, that's even setting aside the whole trade war stuff. Right. right. But because okay, of that yeah, as well, yeah. it's like the way we treat China is actually a partnership model where we're not planning to collect data there, but we do have relationships with the top companies, the mapping companies there where we are able to tell a common customer, say an OEM who wants as seamless as experience as possible with their suppliers that, Hey, you know, we've already sort of vetted each other. We can provide your you know, data or, you know, whatever integration kind of endpoints they need in a common formats and just, you know, make it easier in terms of the integration experience. Got yeah. It. That's, I think, pretty specific to China. Yeah. Um, Korea's a little bit similar, although there we actually have been able to operate through a local go-to-market partner um, okay. through um, an automotive company there. Yeah. But yeah, beyond that, it's really where the wherever the customers are, you know, yeah. we can, that's one real uh, benefit of this generation of the automotive mapping uh, problem is that unlike the incumbents, like here in TomTom, we don't have to have this owned and operated, you know, fleet of sophisticated mapping vehicles all over the world um, to collect the data. We can get it from our customers because mm -hmm. uh, our customers' vehicles are outfitted with a lot of these sensors now. Or, you know, we can get it from a network of partners who do, you know, very high-end like government work, et cetera, in terms of LIDAR scanning and, you know, reality capture uh, data collection. And so it's a much more, you know, on the supply side, it's a much more sort of freeing economic model for us to be able to be very flexible, to be able to do, you know, work for anybody almost anywhere in the world, China being the, the major exception. Okay, got it. And what are the the main challenges that you face today? Is this is this sort of just like everything set up and, and now the company is sort of just scaling and moving along as, as the industry develops, as the technology moves along or in terms of uh, mapping or machine learning or sort of data collection? What are what are sort of like the unsolved issues that you look at? Well, I, what I would say in um, in generally like one of the things that has remained a thorny problem, which is one of the reasons we exist, because you know if it were easier, then some of our services wouldn't be as critical. But um, I would say the localization problem is still a really thorny one to be able to do really really well, especially if for higher levels of autonomy where you can't purely rely on a human taking back over. And uh, I think to many lay people, they don't realize that, you know, because you feel like, oh, I have a Google map, but the blue dot is pretty, you know, it's pretty accurate. Good but, enough, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it's right. so not, you know. It's, right. uh, and, um, <laughs> and so basically, like, in terms of the cost and quality equation of it, mm -hmm. like, you can solve the problem for mm -hmm. sure in mm -hmm. terms of, like, getting really accurate localized data down, you know, in terms of on the XYZ <laughs> axes. Mm -hmm. But right. it's A, I think a lot. And, and by the way, for us, we have the luxury of being able to do that in a more asynchronous fashion because we're not providing a real-time localization engine. You know, the customers who are most sophisticated really want to own localization in terms of the, you know, the real-time decisions on where exactly they are. Right. Uh, but they do want a really great HD 
map to compare that against. And yeah. that, you know, that's where uh, we come in. But the, because we can do it kind of asynchronously, it, it does become a lot easier for us. In terms of the real time, it's, you know, throwing like really expensive sensors, you know, uh, not like GNSS, you know, GNSS is the more generic term for GPS, yeah. inertial sensors, odometry, that's all stuff that's been going on and surveying for years, but it's really clunky and usually too expensive for the bill of materials constraints that a passenger vehicle would have. Mm-hmm. And you know, there is a lot of interesting work being done to solve that problem, but the other thing I would say is it's there's no like one silver bullet solution, like basically kind of a usually the, the people I've seen working on this both in-house at some of our customers and also third-party uh, companies, usually it's a cocktail approach where it's just like we had this sort of part GNSS, part inertial uh, sensor, and part computer vision-based approach to it. Yeah. And the hardest thing is to figure out how to weight each of those to ultimately make your localization decisions in real time. Got you know? it. Okay. And so that's something that just struck me. I, and we knew this five years ago, you know, when we were starting the company. And it's just something that I, I'm a little surprised hasn't there hasn't been a little bit more of a dent in. Uh, it's just a it's just one that's uh, always like a, a tricky one. But you know, it, I, there is progress. I would say like on some of the other problems, like perception problems, there's been a ton of progress in that in that time frame. Just like cameras and radars and lidars knowing what things are. You know that that's that's the, that we've made lots of great advancements there. Got it. Okay. And then could I ask you in terms of, um, since you are sort of, you know, an aggregator, when you draw information from different form factors, like different vehicle types, mm-hmm. like from my understanding, when you're, when you're creating an autonomous car, it's not, um, it's not super easy to tie something in if it's coming from a different form factor vehicle. Basically you have to do some, some work on the back end to sort of calibrate your system to make it work on the mapping side. Is that also true or yeah, describe that. Totally. Yeah. So yeah. And that, that's another thing that Again, it was a luxury. Like when you are a new entrant, you can design around things that sometimes the incumbents just couldn't or didn't or whatever. And one perfect example of that is we are able to architect our system to be as IO agnostic as possible. So both on the input side, Mm -hmm. as I said, we can uh, develop our maps from our own first party data, both LIDAR and camera, but also from our customers, from third parties, whether they're fleets or these, you know, serving companies. And we've done all of those and we have pipelines, you know, the, the data collection isn't the hard thing, but the processing it, the, you know, registering those and correcting errors and digitizing them and trying to automate that is all really, really hard. And, you know, that's where we focused a lot of our IP is to be able to do that with a really agnostic ingestion engine. And then on the output side is also true because there's no standards. <laughs> Everybody's doing it differently. There's okay. a little bit of movement in especially just in the last even 9 months around um you know you were see- for example one of the reasons we did the partnership with Baidu on Apollo was we were seeing organically a lot more inbound requests for our maps in Apollo format. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so that was good to see that, you know, there's a pretty big community there, but, and, and a lot of that is research and, you know, academic, et, et cetera. But, you know, there's also some people that are leveraging Apollo for production, at least production relevant purposes, maybe not for production. And then there's, uh, you know, one or two others. There's another uh, program um, that came out of the, what's called Ross Robot Operating System World. Yeah. Uh, it's called AutoWare. It's a, okay. um, an, another sort of open source operating system kind of thing. And uh, we're also seeing uh, some some good sort of grassroots movement there. However, that said, like every one of our customers and everyone we've talked to is doing it differently. Even like, let's say, even if they were using Apollo format or autoware formats or whatever, inevitably they would fork it and sometimes fork it majorly to just, you know, conform to their own stack. Right. Okay. And because of that, we had to figure out a system that could 
really support that and like basically not impose our own proprietary or our, you know, uh, kind of top down decisions on things like how we represent a lane, you know, do we do it with a vector? Do we do it with a polygon? That kind of stuff. Everyone, since everyone's doing it differently, you really got to figure out a way to kind of have a flexible enough system to support how they do it. But the nice thing about that is if you kind of built that in early, um, there can also be a lot of advantages because then, you know, back to my earlier point about being able to see a really wide cross-section, it allows us to be a lot, lot smarter about what works well, what doesn't work well for different use cases, different environments. You know, We can see like what a certain way of representing a map format or a map schema works really well in Seoul, Korea versus in you know a highway uh, outside uh, a German city or whatever. And um, it just makes us smarter. And, and I, hopefully our customers would say this too. I think they would. It also allows us to be a little kind of a provide an advisory role as well to, to sort of help our customers um, evolve their own you know, models and th- data schemas, et cetera, um, around all of that. And I think there will be some convergence. We're also, like I said, we're starting to see a little bit of that. Okay. Um, but I think when, and- when you choose your own format, sorry, one, one last thing, like yeah. as a vendor, if you say, no, this is the Carmera format or like with here in TomTom, you know, mm-hmm. some of our company members have been some of their biggest customers at previous companies. At those companies like say Apple, Amazon, et cetera, they had to have large teams that their job was to then retranslate, reformat the data they were getting from their supplier, which not only adds cost and heads, but also for HD maps where you need to try to get the updates in as soon as possible, it adds a lot of latency. And so, right. so that's another problem with that uh, if, if you don't conform. Okay, got it. And and yeah, do you think that the conforming process is driven by sort of like the larger platform players or like operating systems like, like Baidu or, or what? Yeah, is it, is it sort of just okay? The you know the largest sort of uh, company that's tying everyone else together gets to decide those factors, or what, or what's that well, driven that's by? I mean, uh, you know, I, I think I think these standards 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 usually don't happen by a bunch of people who write a white paper. You know, yeah. like uh, I mean, not not that those things aren't useful, like for ideas, but usually, the, in my experience, especially in this industry, it's going to happen more bottom up, like just organically. Sure, you know, these people working on the problem are all going to come to the same conclusions, but it's going to happen like gradually because they're in their little silos right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but and so for someone like us, actually, it's a, like I said, like we, we don't see ourselves imposing anything because, you know, it's just uh, counterproductive, but we actually think we can play a really useful role because since we do support all those different, you know, the Apollo format, the yeah. um, the old DARPA format is something okay. we support because some of our customers use a variation on that. And then we have customers who just use their own customer X, customer Y thing that was home, you know, uh, home cooked. Got it. We think just more organically that we can kind of, especially if we we start to develop stronger opinions on what the standards should be, we can very more naturally steer them towards, hey, actually, have you considered evolving this in your next, you know, in the next release kind of thing? Okay. That's how we envision it happening. Okay. Okay. Got it. And then, so, you know, you mentioned your work with cities and and sort of um, communicating with regulators. What are some of like the unexpected use cases that you found that Carmera has come across? And then, and then sort of what do you see as like the, the coolest faraway ideas? Like this is, this is what um, you guys could venture towards. Yeah. I mean, I think with cities, I think, you know, cities honestly have just been I think things have changed a little bit in the last year, but before that, I think there's a lot of frustration from cities about just kind of feeling like technology companies were just kind of 
ending, you know, just going around them and they weren't sort of in the loop enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we actually have a little bit of sort of that DNA in, in our team. Like, for example, one of our team members uh, it was a former chief digital officer of New York City, you know, and so like, I think, and also part of just the reason people have come to work for us and like the, the DNA of the company is just like people feel like actually there are a lot of positive externalities from from doing what we do and being more comprehensive, more collaborative with, with some of these other stakeholders is just part of the joy, you know, the part of the fun of working at this company as opposed to just having like a narrow solution for one, you know, stakeholder. So yeah. that's part of it. Uh, and uh, what, some examples. So so basically what happened was, you know, about a year, year and a half ago, I think we realized that some of this data exhaust uh, was actually really valuable for to solve some you know very common urban planning type uh, uh, problems like uh, I mentioned pedestrian density. Yeah. Another one is construction events. You know, those right. are, I think are the two that at least we publicly uh, announced that we're sharing. And uh, if you talk to all the various city agencies that we have relationships with, they really appreciate that because part of it is just in the in the spirit of being more transparent and collaborative with you know, mobility and technology companies that just philosophically, like it's a good thing. And, but also very practically, you know, their construction permit record database is totally usually always wrong, you know? And and so having truth, sources of truth is really valuable. Same thing with vision zero initiatives for, you know, pedestrian deaths and cycling deaths. It's really valuable to have this uh, statistical database and and sort of supplement whatever your other information is on where the riskiest parts of the city are, you know? And I think there's there's a lot of other opportunities there as well. Like even our 3D spatial data is something that could probably be useful as well. Uh, that's not something we're actively sharing now, but it's, you know, something we would probably uh, be open to. Well, also commercially though, we also think that there's longer term, there's actually a much longer tail of use cases for the data that we're collecting, right? If you think about it in abstract terms, essentially what our job is, is to build a a crawler and index for the real world. You know, mm-hmm. and if you think about the road network being you know, kind of like the internet, the nervous system, the circulatory system of the real world, right? And so it's basically, in fact, in the early days, we used to talk about like, we're basically building Googlebot for for, um, the the streets and roads of the world. So, and if you think about it in that way, like obviously high definition maps for cars, you know, is a big opportunity that we're really focused on commercially, but longer term, there's a number of other segments that uh, before we launched out of stealth, that we had a lot of inbound interest in, and in, in some cases we're thinking about actively serving first if it turned out that AV was too early when we launched. Uh, so for example, AEC, Architecture, Engineering, Construction, that was yes. one segment that was very quite interested in, in what we were doing. A lot of firms, construction firms, real estate firms, um, architecture firms, uh, very interested in the concept of a cloud-based data as a service. So instead of the old way of sending surveying groups out and people counter groups out, you know, AR VR was another segment that were the, had a lot of interest in insurance inspections, right? Instead of sending someone out to like look at a, a storefront or to look at a two-year-old street view image, wouldn't it be nice if we had an image from last week? You know, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot other things, business intelligence, like uh, you know, there's uh, the whole. You started to see with small sat companies, you know, a lot of like hedge funds and stuff looking at parking oh, lots, right. counting yeah. cars. Well, there's also some interesting applications for business intelligence, whether it's, you know, what's the next neighborhood that's going to gentrify for okay. real estate <laughs> investors or, you know, how many vacant uh, retail, uh, you know, uh, storefronts are we seeing over time, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's almost endless, but obviously for a company like us, we have to really focus. And, you know, for us, the North Star has always been these um, next generation road intelligence for for AV. But as I said, we do think there's a, there's like part of our kind of 
ethos as a company was always liberate and democratize, you know? And so we think that, and I don't mean in the open source kind of way, I mean like still a commercial system, but where it's, you're not just like building up this big data asset just to, for one big company to kind of hoard it, you know, or you can actually be serving all these use cases in a commercially sure. uh, a sensible way. All right. So, so my last question is, yeah, is there, is there anything that, you know, I, I haven't asked you yet that I, I don't know, maybe something that you think that people are misunderstanding or sort of vision of the future. I leave it open to you. Is there, yeah, anything else you want to talk well, about? I mean, well, I'm curious, uh, you know, to, if I can kind of put you on the, yeah. <laughs> on the <laughs> sure. um, turn the tables a little bit. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious as like, you know, usually the kind of the interviews are with journalists, reporters, right. Um, which are great, but I would, what I like also about talking to you is, you know, you guys are really trying to find the truth to actually act against it with your own wallets, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm very curious about how your own thesis has involved. And you guys, you guys put out a bunch of reports, I think, in the last year, 18 months. And that's, mm-hmm. how, I think, how we met, actually. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious whether there's any insights, epiphanies in terms of what, you know, where you think the stack is going, where the economics are going. Do you think there's going to be a million robo-taxis next yeah. year, uh, <laughs> you know, in the yeah. Tesla network? I'd love to hear a little bit on that. Yeah, I'd say like some of the big, some of the sort of the, the big evolutions. Well, one, I mean, lately we've seen, you know, this past year has been really interesting because uh, companies like Waymo, Cruise, you know, we're getting closer to these commercialization timelines. And in fact, in Waymo's case, we're actually past when they said they would first have their cars on the road. Um, so in some sense, the the like the initial phases have been pushed back a little bit. I mean, Waymo said they were going to have cars at the end of 2018. And I mean, we still don't have cars with, with no engineer in them, right? And then sort of are, yeah, the, the timeline itself might be pushed back a couple of years. As investors, that hasn't changed like the addressable market as much. Because, okay, in, in general, we think that the market for autonomous driving should be valued at uh, $2 trillion today in the equity markets, and it's virtually unaccounted yeah. for. Only a small portion of it is, um, and maybe not assigned to the right players. Mm. But we've actually tested the model to say like, okay, what if we're wrong? It takes twice as long to adopt this technology, and we actually push the timeline out a few years. And I mean, the, the market opportunity is still in the trillions. Right, right. Uh, so it's still worth investing in today. Yes, yeah. um, but sort of, yeah, that development's been interesting and, and certainly changed our viewpoint about who's the furthest ahead. You know, we'd always looked at Waymo as sort of the technology leader and we're sort of realizing how hard it is to get that those final percentage points to a fully right. autonomous car. That, and I guess like in terms of the sensor set, you know, originally we had written some pieces where we, about LiDAR, yeah. where it said, okay, this is absolutely necessary. Um, sort of all the, all, all that we've read and everyone that we've talked to is, sort of pointed us in that direction. So it's really been interesting just to see sort of Tesla come out and say, um, no, you may not need it. So our thought process has changed a little bit there in terms of, okay, maybe it's possible Basically, if you have enough of a data library to sort of do some interesting things that the competition won't be able to do. So those are sort of two. What are some examples out of curiosity, interesting things? I guess I'm saying like you maybe have, maybe the the data library is basically the asset that gets you to solve for full autonomy. Because oh, okay. um, the other yeah. examples that we've seen, you know, like everything that sort of like deep mind, all of their major accomplishments, it seems like the more data that you feed a system, the better it becomes. And that sort of like machine, machine learning can surprise us in a lot of ways, but that seems to be like a, n- a known thing about it. So I guess we've decided that sort of, you know, watch Tesla sort of amount, amount all this information and thought, okay, well, maybe they, they really have something. So maybe that the claim that you might not need this sensor, which is clearly sort of better in terms of perception, determining that something is there, maybe there's a, a workaround. 
basically. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious, not to get too much in the weeds, but yeah. I'm curious at <laughs> that model, right? What do you find it to be most sensitive to besides time frame of maturity? Well, you know, a big, uh, actually a relatively large cost. Well, so, okay. So the biggest factor in driving down our thesis around autonomous driving is that an autonomous taxi will be super cheap to the consumer. We think it could price at scale at 22 cents per mile for robo taxi. So that's less than a 10th of the cost of a taxi today and uh, less than half of the cost of driving a personal car in the US. The biggest factor in driving that down is the utilization of the car. So taxis in New York, I think, have like a 30% plus utilization rate. We're assuming over a 50% utilization rate. And, and sort of the justification for that is like these are more efficient systems. Basically, once you take the human out at all, you're able to get um, some routing efficiencies as well. So I guess that that's sort of the, the biggest one. And a couple other things that make the model a little bit sensitive are the we've actually factored in a labor cost for a remote operator. Mm-hmm. So depending on, you know, how many uh, cars per person you have mm-hmm. for that model, yeah. Um, that, yeah. that would affect the cost. Yeah. But, you know, you can imagine in the early days, we don't expect that 22 cents to be available day one. Yeah. It could price just like right under Uber and Lyft. And yeah. then the hope is that it, w- it would eventually get there. Yeah. I mean, on that last point, I mean, I think, first of all, it's smart to model in, you know, remote op. And on your last point about what is, you know, kind of the key sort of elasticity or whatever the right term is in terms of, or I guess indifference price for a consumer willing to take, if we're talking about robo-taxis here, willing to yeah. take a robo-taxi versus a human-driven Lyft or Uber. It's basically just, for me, it comes down to the price experience yeah. or price convenience. And right. I think fig- like modeling out, what I'm very interested in is modeling out, like what does the delta need to be, right? For someone to take maybe a slightly longer, you know, it'd probably be a slightly longer ETA for a while if it's not human-driven. Yeah. But how much do you have to save them? And I certainly don't think it's 10x, you know, the 22 cents. I think it's still, you know, above a dollar. Um, but uh, but yeah. it would be interesting to like try to to sort of play with the model or, or try to feed that model with some some end research on that. Because I think that's, I think that's going to be the key for the timeline, the actual, you know, like what that that key sort of inflection point on those curves are, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think that that makes a lot of sense. And and sort of that's why, you know, the initial, I'd say Waymo commercialization was a little bit disappointing because it's like basically equivalent to Uber and Lyft for worse experience. But uh, we've done, we've looked at the elasticity of demand for when um, Uber lowered their prices below uh, taxi prices mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Yeah. And we, we're, we basically think there there was a an, an increase in demand because of that. And you, you saw Uber take a lot of share from the taxi system in San Francisco. So that's that's sort of um, what we've what we've based our like initial early year demand off of, or at least like a factor that goes into it, along with like looking at how other technologies have commercialized and how long that adoption takes. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it definitely like an unanswered question, but we've tried to do our best guesswork at yeah, it. Great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the good news is though, I think uh, what what has been nice, I guess maybe this might might be a, a last thing to to talk about to your point what has been nice is that you know this parallel path approach of the industry where you have people working on the level 2 level 3 personally owned vehicles initially more of a luxury feature and then in parallel you know the level 4 mass mobility service approach and you know typically more geofence those are actually both humming along in parallel and there's lots of work, at least for a company like us lots of work to do on both yeah and i think that's that is the right path like i think where we see things going is almost a little bit like, you know, those early cell phone maps, you know, remember like, like I got my first cell phone in the year 2000, I think. Right. And uh-huh. I was like, I think it chose Sprint or something like that. Yeah. The Sprint network looked terrible on, <laughs> yeah. a, on a US <laughs> right. nav, you yeah. know? And yeah. so it's like, and, but now it's all like red almost everywhere you'd right. want to be. Right. And I think like with uh, AV, you're basically seeing like 
you know, rivers of, you know, usually highways, limited access highways of autonomy, or, you know, at least level two, level three, or mm-hmm. you, know, you have say autopilot or super cruise or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then like little lakes, you know, in certain areas that are starting to pop up of, you know, true L4 driverless. Yeah. And that cell phone map will just keep kind of, you know, they'll start bleeding into each other and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be fun to see what that map looks like. And, you know, next time we talk. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I learned a lot from this conversation and uh, great to have you here. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating on iTunes. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.